In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Glenn mentioned the Beatles at the top of our hour. In 1976, uh, Paul McCartney had left the Beatles behind and had formed his own band called Wings. Thank you very much, yes. And one of the songs that they are known for, among others, is a song called Silly Love Songs, right? First two lines of it is, You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around and I see it isn't so. It's a great first line. If you've ever seen Moulin Rouge, it shows up in the little elephant medley love. But the question is, why is that true? Why do people still keep writing and buying and singing over and over and over again in the shower silly love songs when this world is so full of tragedy, so full of brokenness, so full of lost, broken love? Why do love songs persist when our temptation to cynicism is at hand almost every week? I have, an, I have a, a theory. And my theory is sort of based on an analogy from an experience that many of you may have had this week. Raise your hand if you lost power during the snowstorm. Yeah, wow. Sorry if there's anybody from Duke Energy here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but so it was. You know what? When your power went out and your household living room went sub-freezing, you had a particular experience, right? Uh, Yeah, it got cold really fast. But what happened then was that a fight ensued, and, and that was not with Duke Energy. It was your body's fight to stay warm. Your body naturally took all of the heat from the extremities and removed it to the core because your heart's got to pump and your brain's got to work and your fingers, nice. At that moment, a luxury item. And you huddled and you sat and all you wanted to do was stay warm. You didn't want to do anything else. You just wanted to put that blanket on you and let whatever that air column that surrounded your body to kind of warm up a little bit like a wetsuit. You just wanted to get warm. And in that moment, you were hemmed in and you could do nothing that you would ordinarily want to do. And when the heat came back on though, oh boy, everything was different. The warmth from the outside was more than warmth. The power, the heat was freedom. Because now you were no, your body was no longer fighting to f- create warmth for itself. It could just think like it usually does and do what it ordinarily did and act in all the ways that it wanted. And then it was able to be free to be of assistance to some other people. You were free when the heat came back on, so to speak. And I think that's an, analogy, an analogous way of talking about why do people still listen to love songs? Because when love is coming from the outside, something changes. When you are noted and you are esteemed and you are cherished, something changes. When you are provided for and protected and dignified, those are not just nice little verbs. You're free again. You are free to let your guard down. You are free to give up whatever pretense that you sort of walk around in trying to let everybody know that you're lovable even though deep down you're not sure if you are. When it starts coming from the outside, you are freed just to be because you no longer have to fight to gain or secure that love that you so desperately want but perhaps are too afraid to admit. It's not just a matter about heat. 
It's not just a matter about love, it's a matter of freedom. And in that freedom, there's a kind of relief, a kind of rest. During Advent, in this season when it's cold, we are feasting our eyes on a story that is warm. A very ancient story. An ancient story that is short and it is sweet. But an ancient story that connects us both with the storyline of Jesus and moreover it connects us with the very spirit of Jesus. And that's why we're listening to the book of Ruth. And so far in chapter 1 where we left off two weeks ago before the storm, all that story knows is tragedy. All that story knows is loss. A loss of love. Of being without But what we learned in that first chapter is that even in the most unwanted moments, God can end up finding and being with you in the most unexpected ways. Those who are at the center of the story have lost much, but have found something wondrous where they did not expect to find it. Because the snow happened last week, we're having to take chapter 2 and chapter 3 in one big chew. One big mouthful, and it's going to be a lot. But it's perfect that they go together because it forms essentially the very heart of the story, a love story. But love story, not like anyone that you're familiar with, that trades in categories that are so foreign and and beyond the pale in some ways that it's almost not appropriate to call it a love story, and yet it is. But it's far more compelling than any romance you've ever heard or read about. And one thing it isn't, it sure ain't silly. And when we hear this love story, we're going to discover more it has to do with God than it has to do with anybody else in that story. And the way we're going to hear that story is through voices. Voices of people that sound like you, who are from among you. It's a long two chapters, and so I'm going to let you keep your seats as you listen to this part of the story. However, you are going to participate in it. You have one line because you are the reapers. Don't miss your line. I'll point. But you're the reapers. It's coming your way. And we're going to learn three things about God through the love story that happens in Ruth chapter 2 and chapter 3. So, are you ready? Ready for your close-up, Mr. DeMille? Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. 
Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, And lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you have said I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, and turned over, and behold... A woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the beautiful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not your typical love story. How it starts is this way, though. Grain, grain everywhere, but not a kernel to crack. They show up in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And if you were with us two Sundays ago at the Liturgy in Blue, then you know at this point in the story, Naomi has told everybody, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because Mara in Hebrew means bitter. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two boys, and with that, she's lost most prospects for being able to provide for herself or for that line to continue beyond herself. And all she has with her, all she has with her is this woman named Ruth, who is also a widow, who used to be married to one of Naomi's sons. And they wander back widowed into Bethlehem. And even though it is at the beginning of the barley harvest, where everybody is starting to reap the land and show forth the goodness of that fruit, They don't have any prospects of making any of it. These are two essentially defenseless women who have no network and all Naomi has is a parcel of land that she can't reap. That's the situation that begins. It begins in a minor key. But if you were listening closely there in verse 1, it actually starts with the introduction of another character. His name is Boaz. And it says as a narrator likes to do in the way of foreshadowing, it just so happens that there's a guy named Boaz who happens to be a member of the family of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. That's all the narrator says. Oh, that. Keep in mind. And then he drops it right there. Ruth goes to Naomi and says, Mom, we got to eat. I'm going to go find a field. I'm going to go look for somebody that might look kindly upon us, might show us, in her words, favor, and let us glean from that field because we got to eat. And you got to think what Naomi's thinking in that moment. I think Naomi's in that moment thinking a little bit like Gandalf thought at the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring. Remember, they're all 
talking about how are we going to get the ring to Mordor, how are we going to destroy it, and they're all starting to fight with each other and bicker, and the whole council is beginning to erupt in these fissures of, of, um, of contrast and conflict until finally Frodo speaks up. He says, I'll carry the ring. I don't know the way, but I'll carry it. And in that moment, Gandalf's face just goes ashen and his head sinks because he knows they don't got a choice. Somebody got to go. But to send Frodo, who's the only one that can go, I've just, he's just invited himself into danger. Naomi realizes that for Ruth to go do what the family's got to do to eat, Ruth's got to walk herself into danger. And you think, what's the deal? What's the problem? She just needs to sink green. Look, as we said at the beginning of this whole series, Ruth's a Moabite. And if you're a Moabite, you are not exactly kissing cousins with your fellow Israelites. Because they got a history. They're estranged. There is no love lost between Israel and Moab. Because Moab been throwing shade on Israel for a long time. Their kings have been seeking to curse Israel for a long time. And so here's this young girl, who knows, 18, 19, 20, who knows, she shows up at some land with a bunch of guys, a bunch of dudes They don't care, with this woman that's got no network, no protection, and she's looking to find grain. She's just walked into danger from anybody else's perspective. She got to go. They got to eat. And where does she land? It says, it just so happens that she ends up gleaning in the field, seeking permission to glean from the field of who? Of Boaz. Boaz. The, the one guy in Bethlehem, of all the gin joints she got to showed up in, of all the fields, thank you for getting that, of all the fields that she shows up in, she shows up in the field of the person who was related to her mother-in-law. And Boaz Here's that story, and here's about Ruth, and Boaz is a smart guy, right? You don't become a rancher of fields like that and have all those workers unless you're a smart guy. Boaz knows who this woman is, and he knows who Naomi is, and isn't it interesting to him that of all the people that might show up at his field, it's the one young defenseless woman who is related to Naomi by marriage, and therefore to whom he is related by blood. And we all marvel at the way in which those things happen. What, what is the narrator out to get across to us in just these first couple instances of Ruth showing up at the right place and Boaz happened to be the place where she ends up at the field? The narrator is out to show us God's beautiful way he intervenes. That he brings benefit to what we need in the hour that we need it, even in the wake of of great tragedy, even in the wake of great hopelessness, that he intervenes in a way that he's present, that he's participatory. The, the technical word for that is his providence. And all that just means is that he's involved. He's not aloof, kind of watching how it goes out, going, oh, what a wonderful coincidence that was. He helped orchestrate it. He's involved. And the narrator through this story is helping us to see the way in which God intervenes in circumstances for our good and you and i hear that and we go what a sweet story perfect for the hallmark channel but have we any reason to think it's true true for us because look if we're all honest with ourselves you are born you live stuff happens you get a little experience under your belt you probably suffer a little or a lot and then you wonder is this world got any oversight to it? Or are we all alone? Which is it? 
that nice little contrast there kind of shows up really sweetly and succinctly in that movie Signs about Mel Gibson's character who played an Episcopal priest who after the tragic death of his wife in a car accident, he leaves the ministry, he leaves any hope of that, and he's a, he's a, he's a, 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 he grows corn in fields here in middle America, and in that movie Signs, aliens have come to earth, and nobody knows what they're up to or what they're got to do, and now here in this scene, Mel Gibson is talking to his brother while all the world is a flutter and a twitter or afraid about what are these 14 lights hovering over the whole earth? What do they mean for us? And here Mel Gibson's character tries to, to split it out, tries to make sense of it for his brother, if not the whole world. Listen. People break down into two groups. When they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign, evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, a happy turn of chance. I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in a very suspicious way. For them, this situation is a 50-50 could be bad could be good but deep down they feel that whatever happens they're on their own and that fills them with fear yeah there are those people but there's a whole lot of people in the group number one and they see those 14 lights they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen, there'll be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. See, what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way is it possible that there are no coincidences it's a sci-fi movie but it's asking the questions we are all asking it talks about two kinds of people the kind that thinks that we're that there's a presence that's behind things that we can rest in, that is here even when things are hard. And then there are people who think we are just alone. And here's the thing, folks. Uh, he says there are two kinds of people. The truth of the matter is we're both kinds at some point. We wander back and forth between those two kinds of worlds, right? If you believe that God is behind all things, there are moments where you give thanks, you see beauty, you receive goodness, and you praise him, and you go to bed at night in thanksgiving. And then there are other moments where all of the color drains from your life, and you think, we are alone, and I am numb. 
But I, I would dare say that there are also people in this world, some of you may be here today, who, who the idea of God is maybe a nice idea, but nothing more than a nice idea, and you have a certain suspicion about all things, and for most of the time, you feel like, you know what, it's all random, stuff just happens, and it's lucky or not, you have good fortune or bad fortune, and any meaning that you're going to have, you're going to have to create it for yourself. But there are moments for you that you can't put in that category. There are moments for you when you encounter something that is full of beauty, that makes you hearken to the very idea of justice, that there's something that transcends all things, and you don't have a category for that, and you can't easily demonstrate it, that it makes sense by the scientific method that you can measure or quantify. And you have that feeling, and that's everybody's experience, whether you believe in a God or not. You go between those two worlds. It's what one philosopher calls living in a world full of cross-pressures. Where sometimes you, you really are convinced of that thing that you hold on to a lot of the times. And other times it's kind of like, I don't know if it's there. This is a story in Ruth. But that story is making an argument. And part of that argument is to say, even when the world drains from all, well, even when all the color drains from your world, God is still at work. And it's not as if this story is sort of, sort of Pollyanna's story. She lost a husband and two kids within 10 years. And still stuff, even in her most unwanted moments, she finds God with her in the most unexpected ways. This story is helping, asking us to see God's beautiful interventions. Not just his interventions, though. Something more than that. Something even more striking than that. Ruth, she, she gleans the field. And, and, and then Boaz sees what she's up to. And he, and he comes to know more of her story. And what does Boaz do straight off? He starts talking to her. He doesn't leave her back like from at a distance and kind of manage her from a distance. He comes right up to her and he starts talking to her like she's almost his own family. He says, my daughter. And then he says, let me, let me show you. I'm going to protect you. you. You stay in my field. Don't go to another field. I can't, I can't watch over you in another field. And there's no reason for you to think you'll be safe anywhere else. Stay here. Stay with the women who are on my staff. When you go get water, go to where my men are, I'll talk to them. And they'll provide for you. He's out to protect her. He does that for her. Sight unseen, he does that right then. Not only does he out to protect her, he's out to provide for her. He lets her glean in the field. And then when it's time to eat, he doesn't say, hey, uh, go eat over there. He says, come to my table. My table. You can sit beside my reapers. I've never seen you before in my life. Sit here. I'm going to pass you the roasted grain, the good stuff. I'm going to let you dip your morsel of bread into the vinegar, the good stuff. And I'm going to let you eat until you're what? Satisfied, until you're rubbing your belly. And not only am I going to let you eat until you're rubbing your belly, not some sort of little meager portion. I'm going to let you eat until you are full, and then I'm going to send stuff home with you to Naomi. He's providing for her. He's protecting her, and he's also providing for her. And he's going to let her work the whole season in his field. You know the most important thing he does for her though? Beyond protecting, beyond providing, he dignifies her. If you're listening really carefully, you may wonder, why is it that the narrator over and over and over again says, Ruth the Moabitess? Dude, we got that. That was in chapter one. Why do you keep reminding us? Like we have, don't we, have, we have a pretty good short attention span. Why do you keep telling us that she's from Moab? It's because the narrator is getting up in Israel's business. It's because the narrator is getting up in yours and my business. 
Because when you hear Ruth say in verse 10 of chapter 2, why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. She's right. She's from Moab. There is no love lost between them. And yet he is noticing the unnoticed. He is treating like one of his own what you and I might refer to as somebody who is other. They're unlike us. They're unfamiliar to us. They're unheralded by us. They don't even agree with us in a lot of ways. They are to us the other. And the narrator is saying, Israel, you do that. You think everybody that's not like you, not like Israel, who's not of your ethnicity, is other. And I'm saying, the narrator of this story is prescient for our day. Is that not our problem? Everybody's the other who doesn't agree with us or who doesn't like us or who we can't even put into category. They're other. You may have been walking in the gallery over the last several weeks and you may have seen that kiosk that has a bunch of sticky notes on it and you're thinking, who forgot why those are there? What's up with that? That came from the Q Commons event. And at the beginning of the Q Commons event, I invited everybody to write by the end of the evening on the end of a sticky note the answer to this question, to finish this sentence. What if we fill in the blank. Listen to what they said. Fill out the sticky notes. It's on the gallery. We've compiled like 75 or 80 responses from everybody that came. But one theme that showed up pretty often among those sticky notes was this. What if we invited to our dinner table people who we might think otherwise are as the other? What if we invited the people that we're offended by or unsettled by or unfamiliar with or are, who are unknown to us and we just invited them to our table not because we had anything to say to them but because we wanted to understand them and know them. Boaz is showing us a picture of this thing in the Bible called hospitality of inviting the stranger into our midst and treating them like one of us because guess what they are. They all bear the image of God. And so she marvels at the way he has shown her favor. And then he explains why he's done so, which is the, probably the most important verse in the chapter. He says to her in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I know your story, Ruth. I know what you left behind in order to come here. And I know what you ventured for the sake of this woman who you've barely known for several years. And you didn't come here just because you had nothing left for you in Moab. You had plenty to live for in Moab. You could have stayed there, but you were persuaded of something else. You were persuaded of not only Naomi's need, you were persuaded of Naomi's God. Such that you were the one who said, I go where you go, where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. You left everything you know and you have ventured much. And I marvel at that, young lady. You are a strong female lead and you have been led by God and you've taken refuge under his wings. That's favor. And for some reason, it would suggest to Israel and to us that when favor is found, you are freed to venture in ways you never thought imaginable because you took your refuge in the Lord. And Boaz affirms her for that. And so what we're supposed to see here is not just the beautiful intervention of God, we're also here to see the striking favor of God. The favor that she sought, the favor that she found, but a favor that came to her in scads, in ephahs of barley, and more. 
in protection and provision and in dignity. When Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells her what happens and says, where you been? Where did all this come to you? And then Ruth says, funny, I show up in this guy's field and his name was Boaz, at which point Naomi spits her goat milk out again. You're kidding me. Boaz is our relative. He's part of our family. He's part of my dead husband's family. You ended up in his field? You're kidding me. Guess what? And then here's the reveal of the chapter. Naomi says, not only is he a relative, he's also a redeemer. He has not only an opportunity to be of assistance to his family, he has a responsibility to that family. And that responsibility might, have, might entail something far more than just providing grain or being kind. And we'll unpack more of what it means for him to be a redeemer in next week's passage, but that's the reveal. Stay tuned. The story gets even better. But it is in that moment that we're meant to learn one other thing about the Lord through this story. And that is what happens after the barley season's concluded. The harvest is done. The grain is in. It's time to sift the chaff from the wheat and to put it to good use. And for that season, Naomi has seen how Boaz has accorded great respect and kindness unto the living and to the dead, as she says. And she hatches a plan. And that plan has one thing in mind. At the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth says, I'm going to go get us some grain, hopefully. Naomi says in the beginning of chapter 3, Honey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find rest for you. And that word for rest, again, is more than food. It's more than access to a field. That rest has to do with the future and in her mindset, a family. And so this is the plan. Ruth, go take a bath. Find the spices. Make yourself smell pretty. Wear a cloak. Kind of show up under cover of darkness, but don't show up until everybody's had their food. Don't show up until after um, Boaz has had his food and had a glass of wine or two or Three, wait till he falls asleep. And then after he falls asleep by the field, by the grain, go lay down and at the middle of the night, take the blanket off of his feet and lay there and wait. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, um, parents, have. Uh, tell me how you explain this one to your kids. It's a great moment um, in parenting. There she is. What's up with that? What's, what's going on? This plan is for Ruth to go to Boaz and then offer herself to become his bride. This young woman offering herself to become the bride of a much older gentleman who is single. And we think to ourselves, what is going on here? Now, this is an uncommon sort of romance, is it? Yeah, romance probably doesn't even fit the word. Why does Ruth do what she does? Why is this such a poignant moment in this chapter, especially for Israelites reading the story, because in Ezekiel chapter 16, God says unto Israel, when I walked by you, Israel, I, the Lord, spread my garment over you, as if to say to Israel, I would betroth myself to you in love. I will be your husband. You will be mine. We will be each other's, and we shall exist in love. Ruth 
is remembering what Boaz had said to her back in chapter 2. When Boaz says, may the Lord repay you, may he reward you in full for the way in which you have taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. When Ruth says, spread your wings over me, she's saying to Boaz, you know what you wanted for me, what you prayed for me? I might humbly ask that you be that for me. I might ask you to become the answer to your own prayer request. And Boaz marvels. And he says unto this woman, oh this, oh, this kindness, this chesed loyalty, this kindness is even greater than the kindness you've shown unto Naomi. Because he knows that in that moment, Ruth is not coming to, Naomi, to Boaz because she wants to sort of fall in love and talk about going on vacations with each other and enjoying all this. She's there thinking about Naomi. And so she gives herself in love to Boaz, having come to trust this man and his kindness and his loyalty and his godliness, and that he might take her as his own, and in so doing, take upon the family as his own responsibility also, to be a redeemer. And he says, I'll do that, pending one other transaction that we'll get into next week. But in that moment, we're supposed to see the third and last thing of this story. Not only are we to see the beautiful intervention of God, not only are we supposed to see the striking favor of God, we're third of all supposed to see the covenantal love of God. The abiding, faithful promise of God to love even when we are faithless. It's what a covenant is. It's why we see it in this moment. That what is being transacted potentially between Ruth and between Boaz is precisely what God offers those of us who would come unto him in love. That he would promise himself in love and in faithfulness even when we are faithless. That's what a covenant is. And we're meant to see that. And Israel is meant to see that. It's nice, right? It's it's pretty. And maybe we read this passage at a wedding, but what does it matter? Why, Why should you care? I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why in the words of none other than one first lady of the United States, which this should sound familiar to Ben because I read this at his ordination sermon. But Eleanor Roosevelt, in one of her memoirs, said this. Up to a point, it is good for us to know that there are people in the world who will give us love and unquestioned loyalty. I doubt, however, if it is good for us to feel assured of this devotion without the accompanying obligation of having to justify this devotion by our behavior. The long and the short of that long quote is this. We all would like to believe that there is someone who will be loyal to us regardless. But in our heart of hearts, we know that we can't trust that kind of loyalty. And so our default position is to do everything we can to protect, to merit, to earn the opportunity to justify our existence in their eyes so that they will continue to be faithful. That, friends of mine, is our default position, and you know it. We don't trust that there is a love, a kindness that will be faithful, a covenant that will stick by us. Friends, that's why the narrator is out to show us the covenant love of God through the kind of covenant that might be transacted between Ruth and Boaz because that's who our God is. 
The one who does not ask us to justify his love unto us, but simply offers it in his love by his grace. What do you and I do with a story like this? We, take, we allow this story to take us by the hand. And we delight in its goodness and we smile at the way kindness works its way through every nook and cranny of that story. But then we let that story take us by the hand and put our hand in the hand of another one. In the hand of one who just like Ruth left everything he knew and loved and was familiar with and entered into a place of danger for the peace and security of those for whom he'd come. Who took no thought of himself but only thought of the one for whose sake he'd come, just like Ruth had, Ruth puts our hand in the hand of the one whose name was Jesus. We let that story take us by the hand and put our hand in the hand of the one who, just like Boaz, was admired by all of those who knew him well and who gave no thought to your origin or your association or whatever your reputation might have been, and sought your peace anyway, who came from as far away as he could to bring you close unto himself, and who by so doing essentially becomes the answer to his own prayer by making peace with God through his very own blood. He becomes the answer to his own prayer. That is who Jesus is. See, I said at the beginning of the sermon that chapter 2 and chapter 3 is all about the love story of this story, and that's true. But this love story is kind of like those Russian dolls. They call them a troshka. Those dolls inside of dolls inside of dolls. One of the outer dolls is, what we're seeing here is it's a love story between Ruth and Boaz, right? But you open up that doll and you see that inside that doll it's a love story between God and Naomi. See, Naomi's trying to remember who God is and why she might trust him. And then when you realize that's part of the story, that inside of that doll, it's another story. And that story is the story of love between God and Israel. Because Israel needed to hear again who their God was and how he works. But inside of that story, friends, between God and Israel, this story is a love story between God and you. And by that I mean this. You read this story and you think, all right, maybe I'm supposed to be like Ruth. Maybe I'm supposed to be like Boaz. And to be sure, the way in which they demonstrate virtue is something to be lauded and um, emulated. But friends, this story is all about reminding you that you're Naomi. That you wander back and forth between bitter and not, and sometimes you don't know which way is up, and you need help from the outside. And therefore, the only way, the only thing you bring to your search for rest is your need of it. Naomi supplied nothing, nothing to her own rest except her need of it. And that is what that child at that cradle and that man at that cross is out to remind all of us is that the only way, the only thing you bring to your search for the rest that he gives is your need of it. So how do you respond to it? Maybe you just need to think about that. Maybe you just need to admit to yourself that you have nothing to bring to yourself rest and to acknowledge that. And then, just like Ruth, ask the Lord Jesus to spread his wings over you, if you never have before. To spread the garment of his love over you, that you might find that rest, the rest that we all want, the rest that helps us be free. That's the good news of Jesus, and Ruth helps us see it.
There's a psychiatrist in Virginia, whose name is Kurt Thompson, and he said this, everybody comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for them. Everyone comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for them. Seth Smoyer came into this world looking for someone who was looking for him, and he found it in the eyes of his parents. Ruth was looking for someone looking for her, and she found it in Boaz. Naomi was looking for someone who was looking for her, and she found it in Boaz, but more so she found it in her Lord. Friends, this life, you are looking for someone looking for you, and it is Jesus who's come looking for you. And that's why we're listening to this story, and that's why we see it in love, and that's why at the end of the day, there is no way we can call this story silly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Two weeks ago, I closed that sermon by praying over you a song. I sang it. It's an ancient hymn. It's from the 5th century. The guy who wrote it is named Prudentius. I wish I had his name. I would like to sing it again, but this time to invite you to sing it on the second time through. Consider it my little stocking stuffer to you to learn a new song. So I'm going to sing it. The lyrics will be there, and then we'll all sing it together. If you already know it, sing it with me through the first time through. Okay? Here we go. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega. He the source, the ending, he of the things that are, that have been, and that future you shall see, evermore and evermore. Of the Father's love begotten, Ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending, He of the things that are, that have been, and that future you shall see. Evermore and evermore. Well done. Would you stand for our closing hymn?